Well, Josh was an ordinary guy. He had two kids, and uh, one of his kids was six years old, and he signed his son up for Little League. And uh, when Josh uh, got his son signed up, he paid the dues, got everything ready for Little League. About three weeks before the Little League season started, it is that time of year now, about three weeks before the Little League season started, he got a, an email, a mass email from the director, the coordinator of his particular league, the six-year-old league, crying out for coaches. They needed more coaches, more coaches. We need more coaches, to, otherwise we won't have enough teams to fit all the kids on. And so... Partially out of guilt, partially out of a desire to see his son play Little League, Josh signed up to be a coach, having never coached before. And uh, Josh discovered one thing about six-year-old boys, as he discovered he actually loved working with them. The six-year-old boys were fantastic. The parents may have been another story for Josh. Uh, Josh discovered real quick that there were expectations of him that people had as coach. First of all, he heard that he, did, he was having practices at the wrong times. And then he heard from parents that he was having too few practices. And then he heard from parents that he was having too many practices. And then the season started. And of course, um, everyone just wanted the kids to have fun, but yet everyone seemed to want to win at the same time. And of course, we all know that every parent knows is their child is the key to a winning team. And so Josh quickly discovered that, uh, that every parent wanted their player to be the star player on the team. And Josh got emails and phone calls, and we want to win. And then inevitably he got the, hey, I'm paying good money for this talk. Um, and at some point in the season, Josh went, are you serious? Like, really? I can't do anything to please these people. It would just be nice if someone would appreciate me. Everyone's got expectations of us, don't they? We live in a culture of of expectations. Everyone expects something from us. Our boss expects something from us. Our spouse expects something from us. Our children, this often sounds like whining, but nonetheless, our children have expectations of us. Our clients or our customers have expectations of us. And then we also in turn have expectations of others, don't we? We have expectations of our bosses, of our spouses, of our children. We have expectations if we're in a position uh, of management. We have expectations of our employees. We expect productivity and positive contributions. We have expectations of the stores we shop at. We want it to have it our way. We have expectations with, with our money, you know, that I expect to get what I paid for. I, I had this experience recently where I walked in to a restaurant and sat down and my server was fantastic. Like, I got the best customer service that I think I've ever gotten. And I walked out of that place and I said, I thought I should, I should write a letter and tell them how great it was. You know, tell his manager how great that service was. Of course, they forgot about it and never did it. And the other, but I had an experience later on where I had terrible customer service. And boy, I was that night writing a letter. I mean, aren't we like that, right? The good that we kind of, oh, we're, we're slow to tell people we appreciate them, but we're quick to point out the problems. And we feel that in our own lives. Everyone has expectations. Everyone expects something from us. And appreciation really is a a thing that's not often given. And the problem is we live in a world of expectations. And sometimes we just want someone to say thanks. Sometimes we just want someone to appreciate us. And today I want you to know that someone does appreciate you. You are appreciated. And the most important person in the universe appreciates you. In Christ, you are appreciated. 
This has vast implications for the way we live and act as followers of Jesus. So we're in this series, Who Are You? Who Are You? We've been in this series, Embracing Our Identity in Christ. For those of you who are here today and who have believed and trusted by faith that Jesus Christ died for your sins in your place, that he rose from the dead, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. If in faith you've experienced this kind of forgiveness, you are in Christ. And we've been looking at this, this for weeks now, for actually a couple of months. Uh, we've been looking at this idea of embracing who we are in Christ. We saw the very first week that we're saints, we're holy ones, we're set apart. We saw the next week that we're adopted. We saw that we've been redeemed. We saw um, three weeks ago that we've been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has placed himself in us. If you're in Christ, God lives in you. The last two weeks, Pastor Jeff talked about the impl- one of the implications of how embracing our identity in Christ really helps us walk or be transformed as a follower of Jesus. Give, the embracing this identity gives us the power to be transformed into who we really are. Now today, what I want to look at is that you are all these things, but you are also in Christ appreciated. When you're feeling beat down, when you're feeling worthless, when you're feeling unappreciated, when you need to know, you need to know today that you have a God who deeply appreciates you. You're appreciated. Look at the text with me that Krista read for us, Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 15 of chapter 1, we start with this. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith, in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints. Okay, just on a side note real quick. Isn't it cool how Paul talks about faith and love together? Faith in Christ and love for God's people go hand in hand. I have talked to a lot of people in this day and age who say, I like the Jesus thing. I don't like the church thing. I don't need the people. I just need Jesus. But Paul is very quick to point out that Faith and love go hand in hand. And hope. These are the three things that Paul talks about over and over in his epistles. Faith, hope, and love. Faith and love, faith in God and love for his people, just as a side note, go together. Now look at the text continues. So he says, for this reason, since your faith and love for the saints, verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is great. Now, we talked about the very first week that Ephesians is probably a regional kind of letter. Paul addressed it to the Ephesians, but this le- he had an audience wider than just the church at Ephesus, just the city. That this, Paul knew that this letter would be passed on, copied, and circulated around the entire region. And so when Paul is writing this, he has in mind a bigger audience than just the Ephesians. And what this is really neat is he, some of these, he knows he's never met some of these recipients. But he appreciates them all the same. And Paul, he often opens his letters up with these words of appreciation. Why does he do this? I think it's because the word of God reflects not just Paul's heart here, but God's heart. God appreciates his people. Paul expresses this appreciation. He appreciates, he's grateful for you. Paul knows that God appreciates the saints, so what does he do? He prays. The first thing that he does is he prays. Verse 16, so, so I appreciate you. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Prayer helps us to reflect the heart of God, doesn't it? 
When you pray for people, you let them know that you appreciate them. You let them know that you care. You let them know this because you know God cares. You know, I thank God often, just like Paul thanks God for the church in, in Ephesus. I, I thank God often for Waukee Community Church. I mean, there are many times when I'm praying for this church that I just stop and I say, God, I'm so grateful for this church. Uh, we were talking at our elders meeting yesterday about some of the wonderful things about Waukee Community Church. And, uh, and Kevin pointed out something that's just fantastic. He pointed out to me, he said, Dave, think about our church as a, as a relatively small church. All the ways that we're involved in reaching out to people who don't know Jesus. And we were talking about just uh, the number of people that come to our middle school ministry, the number of students that aren't associated with Waukee Community Church at all. And like, we're reaching out to these kids. Uh, we're, our participation in Young Life. Uh, man, we have, a, we have a, um, an investment in Young Life. And when I see what's going on there on a Wednesday night, we'll see 60 kids packed into a house. Many of them who don't believe or trust in Jesus. And we have a part in that. Uh, we were talking about Alpha and just through this Alpha class, the number of people that have come for our community that don't embrace Jesus and they're just checking out Christ. I mean, this is amazing. Through Faith in Action Sunday, we go out to this community and we're investing. And this kind of love for those who don't yet know Christ, who don't know him, like I love that heart of our church, that we invest our time in doing that. And there's so many times I'm thankful for Waukee Community Church, just like Paul is expressing God's heart and expressing gratitude. We let people know that we appreciate them when we pray for them, but especially when we pray with them. When you want to pray for someone, it's really good if you pray for, you tell them, you know what, I'm praying for you. That's really encouraging. But there's another step that praying actually with them. How great is that? To just say to someone, I want to pray with you right now. I'll notice it oftentimes on a Sunday morning. I'll look around and I'll see two people in the corner back there just praying together. How encouraging is it? Uh, I remember when I first came to Waukee Community Church, um, within the first year that I was here, uh, I had a tonsillectomy. And, and as a 30-something-year-old having a tonsillectomy, I don't recommend it for anyone. It was a terrible experience. And I remember just how in, deeply in pain I was. And um, a group of people from the church, I couldn't, I couldn't get off the couch hardly, it hurt so bad. And a group of people from our church came over and they brought the elders over and they laid hands and they prayed for me. And I just remember how, how deeply appreciated that helped me feel. To know that this group of people was rallying around, being obedient to scriptures, praying over me. There is something beautiful when we pray with people. And it's not you shouldn't pray for people or tell them that you're praying. You should, absolutely. But there's something about just that extra step of praying with them. But that's what Paul is, is talking about here, that kind of attitude. He says, listen, I'm remembering you in my prayers. I'm praying for you. I find myself sometimes, though, craving that human appreciation. You know what I'm talking about? Like, sometimes I find myself it's almost unhealthy. Like there's this, I just want people to tell me I'm awesome all the time. I just want to tell me, people to all the time tell me. Like there's in me this desire to be appreciated. Do you ever feel like that? You just like, kind of like Josh at the beginning. Can I just, I just craving someone to tell me how much they appreciate me. That can be unhealthy when we're craving it from people. What we should be craving for is the, the appreciation of our Heavenly Father. Uh, Jesus talked about it when we stand before him one day and we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant.
That's the kind of longing that we should have. Paul's gratitude for the Ephesians reflects God's heart of appreciation. And that's what we already have in Christ. In Christ, you're appreciated by your Heavenly Father. When my dad, I'll never forget one time, my dad just wrote me a note. My dad didn't do that often, but I got a note from him one day just saying, Dave, I want you to know I appreciate how you're raising my grandkids. As an, an adult male, getting that note from my father, like that was a big deal. Your heavenly Father is grateful for you, and that fact is life-giving. So what I want to do is I want to look at the implications of that from the text today. Because what Paul is going to do is he's going to set out for us some implications of this, of this gratitude that he's talking about. His gratitude for the Ephesians, which I think reflects God's gratitude. But what God has done for us. You're appreciated, and I want you to see this. Verse 18a. Well, let's start in 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Okay, so what does this mean when we understand this attitude? He says, I pray also, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Oh, that's a good phrase. Uh, Literally, it's, I pray that having your heart enlightened... Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would be able to see all that God has given you in Christ, or I'm praying that you'd see just how much he's grateful for you. That way you won't be dependent on the appreciation of others. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open to see these things of God. Um, So years ago, when my kids were all uh, littler, and they were coming to the age where they started to need glasses. I remember taking one of my kids uh, to the eye doctor. We did the appointment. We went and picked up the glasses, and we're driving home. And it was a beautiful spring day out. And, and, uh, and she looks around, and, and she looks at the trees around her, and she goes, Wow! With my glasses, I can see the leaves on the trees. She was so excited. It was like there was this whole new world exposed to her when she got glasses. I think that's what Paul is saying here. He says, listen, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be opened to see what God has done for you. If you wonder if God appreciates you, open your eyes. Here's a couple of ways in the text that Paul points this out to us. First of all, he says, I pray that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that in order that you may know, first thing, the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Here's three ways I think that God expresses this gratitude that he want, Paul wants our eyes of our heart to be open to see this. The first thing he wants us to be is, he, he pray that we'd understand the hope to which he's called us. You have hope. And the, the, the truth of the matter, we live in a culture that has no hope. Uh, so a, uh, a year or two back, I had an opportunity to go do a funeral for a guy I'd never met. I'd never met his family. A funeral director just called me up and said, I need someone. And I was willing because it's a chance for me to share the good news of Jesus with somebody I've never met before. And so I went and, didn't, and the family said, listen, uh, the, the only thing we ask is we want short, a sh- short funeral. <laughs> and I said, like, how long? Like 10 minutes. I can do a 10-minute funeral. <laughs> That might shock some of you, but I actually can. And so I did, you know, 10 minutes. And I, so I said, well, let me get to know this guy a little bit. I, I, I'm like, tell me about I'm, I'm wondering, did he have any faith in Jesus? What, you know, when they began to describe the things that he was passionate about, like his car and 
baseball and beer. And, you know, those are some of the things he was passionate about. And I just began to realize as they began to talk that they had no hope. Like, they're like, he was here, he's gone. All we have left is to celebrate the things that he liked. Today's culture is a world with no purpose. We've believed a message of consumerism. We've believed a message of of individualism. If you're all that matters, if what you want is all that matters, if your consumption is all that matters, it leads us to the question, so what? Doesn't it? So what? If you're all that matters, I mean, you you become your own master and you're going to be a terrible master. Atheism, pluralism, these, these values that our culture breeds are hopeless. Today, life is short, play hard is the expression. You only live once. In other words, just live it up now. There's no hope. And pluralism leads to despair, if you think about it. This idea that we can't really know what's true. And so, you know, there's many ways and there's many truths. This idea that our culture tells us, at the end of the day, how can you be sure about anything? It's, it's despair. It's no hope. If you're in Christ, you have hope. 1 John 5, 13, I love this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that a great verse? Jesus is the way. We have a hope in him. And God has built a bridge from death and despair to life. The cross, Jesus experienced death and despair. The resurrection, he brings new life. This is so much more, this resurrection, so much more than a reanimation. It's a new kind of life. God and Jesus recreated life, restoring it to what it used to be. And restoration is better. Your hope in Jesus is much more than just, well, maybe someday I'll come back to life. Through faith, we will be raised anew with Christ. That hope starts now. And I always love to talk about this concept. That our hope is not just, well, we pray a prayer and get saved now so that someday we'll be saved. Our hope is that the hope comes to us right now. However, and I talk about that a lot, but let us never also lose sight of the hope for the future. We have a blessed future in Christ. (laughs) Open our eyes. There is a great hope. The hope to which he has called you. That's the first thing. Paul says, I want you, the eyes of your heart to be enlightened to this, that you have a great hope. Now there's a second thing he's going to talk about here. Not only do you have a great hope, but the second thing he's going to talk about is that you are an inheritance. This is a way that the appreciation and gratitude of God overflows. Not only do we have hope, but it overflows to us that we are an inheritance. This is crazy. Whose inheritance are we? Okay, in week one, we said we're a saint. We're the set-apart ones. The church is the saints. The saints are the inheritance. But look at this, pat, look at this phrase carefully. You think, okay, I hope that you're, you, you think Paul would say, I hope that your eyes would be enlightened to see that the great inheritance you have in Christ. But that's not what he says here. This is amazing. Look at this. This is not about your inheritance. Rather, it's about God's inheritance. Look what it says. The riches of whose inheritance? It's his glorious God's inheritance is the saints, the church. Wait, wait a minute, Dave. We don't talk about God's inheritance. We talk about our inheritance. But look what it says. It's his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is craziness. 
You know, we talked about this phrase a number of weeks ago that Thomas always likes to say to me, is at the end of the day, we get God. And how beautiful that phrase is, that Jesus is our treasure and our great reward. But what is also true, and this is, blows our mind to think about, is at the end of the day, God gets us. Let that just blow your mind for a minute. Have you ever thought of this? You are God's inheritance. You are his treasured possession. Open your eyes and see he delights in you. If you are in Christ, you're an inheritance. Oh, this is beautiful because we don't often like to think about it this way, do we? Oftentimes we like to think about it or we naturally think about it as I'm just a worm and I'm worthless and I, really it's just the mercy of, of God that I'm even in this thing. And, that, and that's all true. <laughs> um, I was thinking about how, try to illustrate this and a number of years ago, Clarissa was going through uh, old keepsakes, and she found this doll that she loves. And I'm telling you, it's the ugliest doll I've ever seen in my life. I found a picture of it on the internet. Laura's going to throw this picture up here so you can see. <laughs> it's, I'm just telling you, like you're going to have nightmares about this doll. <laughs> like this is just the ugliest doll in the world. And some of you are like, that doll really exists. It's in my house, I promise you. And I thought, nobody should like be forced to even look at this doll. And yet here I am. So this, this ugly doll, like, like I sort of view it as, I'm going to have mercy on this doll. Like this doll should not be accepted by any child. And yet I will have mercy upon this child and or this doll and allow this doll to be in my house. You know, and it's a mercy that I didn't sneak it into the trash can, Right. So some of us think about, some of us think about our relationship with God like this, like we're the ugly doll and it's by God's mercy that he doesn't just throw us in the trash. And scripturally, that's actually true that we come as broken sinners. But here the concept is different. So Olivia finds this ugly doll, my three-year-old, and for a period of time, this was her favorite doll in the entire world. She'd carry this thing around and went everywhere with Olivia. This ugly, hideous doll went everywhere with her. And when Olivia looked at this doll, she, she didn't have that reaction of aghast that we have. She said, I, this is my treasured possession, that I, I love it. And that is how God sees us in Christ. In Christ, he doesn't see us as this ugly mess. He sees us as his treasured possession. He appreciates us. Okay, you can take that off, Laura, please. <laughs> we live in a world where performance is all that really matters. If we don't want to be seen by this world as ugly or worthless, we know that we feel our worst worth based on what other people what we do for them, really. Um, the wealthy, they tend to view people and they say, you know, people appreciate me or love me for my money or what I can buy them. The poor say, you know what, people appreciate me based on my labor or something I can do for them. You know, even when we're with our family, everything's great with extended family as long as we do what they want. We're all so used to being manipulated for what we can do. And we've learned that our appreciation is based on what we do and what we bring to the table. But what Paul is reminding us here is that we are Christ's inheritance. That is so powerful. In Christ, you are God's inheritance. Open your eyes, Paul says. 
You have hope. You have an inheritance. And there's the third thing he says to us. The third thing is, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, verse 18, to know the hope, to know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And the third thing, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is a great phrase. His incomparably great power for us who believe. By the way, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ. Paul uses the word power four times here. There's four different words for the use of power. And literally, if you take verse 19, it would sound like this. His incomparably great power, it would sound like this. His great power for us who believe, the power is like the working of his powerful power. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. It's a lot of peas. Uh, he's saying that he's, he's just highlighting the power of Christ. Earlier we said the hope in the resurrection really hints at this power. Open your eyes. God's power is available to you. Let's read on. Verse 20. Okay, so this power is like the working of his powerful power. Verse 20. Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You have the power of the resurrection available to you if you're in Christ. Um, this phrase, raise him from the dead, we think about this as a state, deadness as a state. Like, I, I, I was alive and now I'm dead. You know, dead is a state being buried in the ground. But what oftentimes the writers in the New Testament talk about Christ being raised from the dead, they mean, the, the Greek there is actually the phrase, from among the dead ones, is a, a good way you could translate it. So in other words, it's not about the state of being dead or alive. It's being with or amongst the dead who have no control or power to do anything about their deadness. But God has the control and the power to do something about that. And in Jesus, it's this kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. You think, well, Dave... What are you talking about? Like, I don't have this kind of power. And we think, you know, we think a little bit like magic, like uh, I Dream of Genie. <laughs> Some of you remember that show from the 60s. This genie who could fold her arms and blink and make everything happen, right? We think, why don't I have that power? If God could raise Jesus from the dead and, and, and I have this kind of power, why don't I have the I Dream of Genie blink it, make it happen power? And hold on just a second here. Because if you keep reading, look at what Paul says now. Verse 20. So he raised him from the dead ones. He seated him at the right hand, which right hand is always a special position of power and authority. He seated him at the right hand above in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Jesus has, has a position of authority. The text points to this. It says rule, authority, power, dominion, title. Jesus has a position of authority that is greater than anything you and I can imagine on earth in the spirit, or in the spiritual world. The power is about Christ's authority. Look at 22. In case there was any confusion about what Jesus is powerful over, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. 
Some of you might say, where's my power? Well, this is not Harry Potter magical power that we're talking about. This isn't just the power for you to exert whatever magical power you can to make you look good. This is about Christ's power. And because of our position, because of his position, because we're in him, we're tapped into his power. This is not just about magic. This is about something greater than that. Paul hints at it now when he talks about those spiritual realms and the spiritual authority, that there's this greater power going on. At the end of the book of Ephesians that someday we'll get to, uh, in chapter 6, Paul says this. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is saying, you are part of something bigger. And the fact that God loves you, that he appreciates you, it's not only about your hope for being saved. It is. And it's not only about the fact that you're an inheritance. It is. But it's also the fact that you have power for kingdom work. Because there's something bigger going on here than you and I want to know sometimes. God is thankful for you. And the kingdom work happens because of his power. It's kind of like, I, I was thinking of examples of this power and how it works. So when I uh, was in college, many of you know, I worked at 1-800-Flowers. I was a florist. You may look at me new now. But I, I had this experience of being a florist. But I was kind of like an underling, whatever. And I worked my way up. And just shielded by the fact that I showed up for work every day and worked hard while I was there, uh, my boss liked me and started giving me more authority. And one day she said, Dave, I can't come in tomorrow. I need you to come in at 5 a.m., and open up. And she handed me the keys. And I walked home that night with the keys to the store in my hand. You know, kind of power? Like, I can open the store, you know? Like, wow! Now, it's really not my power. It's her power. She's the store manager. But just for a moment, like, she granted that to me. Oh, um, same experience when my kids were getting older, and I remember the first time that Clarissa and I left home and put Nicholas in charge. And, you know, and he, we're like, you know, you're, you're old enough now, you can be in charge. And, and uh, I remember that, that uh, his, his young face at the time just lit up, and he was like, I have the power. I can make my siblings do anything I want to do. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like that. But it wasn't his power. It's my power. I put him in charge. See, um, it's like if you were given a job from the Queen of England to say, I give you the authority to go, to be an ambassador upon my behalf. The power is not yours. It's the Queen's. It's the same idea. This power is not just a display of force. It's the power to give life. What did the power of the resurrection do when he raised Jesus from the dead? He gave life. This is beautiful. This is about kingdom life-giving work. It's a spiritual battle and a journey, and we get to be part of that. You see, we live in a world where people will beat us down, where people will tell us all the things they don't like about us. People will tell us all the ways we haven't measured up, and they are slow to say the words, I appreciate you. But I want you to know that God appreciates you enough to do these three simple things that Paul talks about. He wants you to know that you have hope, that you're an inheritance, and that you have power. People will beat you down, but in Christ you have power of life for his kingdom. Christianity has always, always, always been a religion that focused on the resurrection. It's always been a power. 
It's always been a religion that focused on the resurrection because of the hope that is there. And in the ancient Near Eastern context in which Paul is writing here to to that Greek Hellenistic culture, they were a culture that was bound by spiritual forces. If you look into the religion of the Romans and Greeks, that they, they had a similar religion with a pantheon of gods, but you understood, those people understood that they were merely pawns or slaves at the whimsical wishes of the gods. And they also understood that life had been predetermined before them and they were trapped. And what Paul is saying here is you have the power of the resurrection. You're not bound by spiritual forces. You're a powerful, treasured, hope-filled, appreciated person in Christ. So if you feel beat down today, I hope you know that you're different than that. In Christ, you have hope. In Christ, you're a treasure. And in Christ, you're powerful. Let's pray. So grateful, Heavenly Father, that you do love us deeply and that just as Paul expresses his gratitude, God, here are ways that this overflows to us. And we thank you and we pray that the eyes of our heart would be open to see these truths, the ones that make Paul so grateful, these truths about who we are and how you see us. God, would our eyes be open to see that truth today? We ask this in the holy and precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.